Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and as usual, we'll soon be joined by Chris Osmar. This week, we're going to begin going through chapters from an edited collection of articles put together by Gerhard Paul and Klaus Michael Malmann in 1995. The collection is called Die Gestapo, Mythos und Realität, and if you are a historian of the Third Reich, and particularly if you're interested in the Gestapo, this is a collection that you cannot go without having in your library. By my estimation, this, there is so much that I have taken out of this in my work. It's a particularly interesting collection because it brought together the latest research at a time when research on the Gestapo was undergoing a major renaissance. Now, the chapter we're going to be covering this week was written by Hans Joachim Hoyer. Hoyer's article is interesting because he's really getting into the process by which you can take a, a normal human being from, in, in most cases, quite privileged backgrounds in terms of your education, your private life, your upbringing. Uh, a, lo a lot of key SS members came from, you know, they were, they were educated as lawyers. They came from middle class, upper middle class backgrounds. Anyway, he, he gets into the, what he calls the brutalization and decivilization process. How you take a normal person and have them become complicit in mass murder and genocide. This larger question about how extreme violence becomes normalized is, is key to the larger questions about the end phase and the radicalization of violence towards different population groups within Germany. So, Chris and I thought that it was an important one to cover for the podcast and for the article. Hoyer is an interesting character to weigh in on this debate because he's a social scientist. He's a sociologist and interested in the larger questions about how institutions normalize certain types of behavior and, and institutionalize people into certain modes of behavior, which is an important part of, of this entire question. Hoyer himself has also done other work on how the underworld organizes itself. And uh, the article that we're going to be talking about today actually went on to be published as a book and can be reviewed in its full format under the title of Die Geheime Staatspolizei über das Töten und die Tendenzen der Entzivilisierung, which it translates as the Gestapo, or the secret state police, about killing, and the tendency toward decivilization. Without further ado, though, we're going to be trying a new segment and reading the news. Yeah, welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. We have 
decided we're going to try integrating a, a new portion into the show. We are going to be reading the news, but as opposed to regular news, we have historian news. Uh, that's right. Uh, so what I think we're going to be doing is talking about reviews of recent books that we, we're not going to have time to get into in detail, but things that catch our eye and help get the word out about. Uh, and we'll also be highlighting uh, the minutes of conferences or uh, other events that are relevant to the topic that we've been talking about. So this is sort of your, this will be the latest and greatest that has been emerging on Nazism that managed to catch our eye from the never-ending font of material that is HNet and HSocialCult, so, which are amazing feeds. If you, if you are a, a professional historian or just interested in following the professional world, HNet will allow you to subscribe and easily follow all the latest publications, which is where we're drawing this material. So we are indebted to the people who are doing the reviews, these are the much truncated versions based on their hard work. Yes. Yeah. So we're doing reviews of reviews. <laughs> Second level inception. So. All right. Well, I guess with that, uh, there's a book that caught my eye, or at least a review of a book that caught my eye that I uh, thought maybe it would benefit us to talk about for a minute. This isn't exactly something that is right on the, the topic that we've been talking about. It's It's not about... Uh, the end phase. It's more about the development of the Nazi movement itself and its its notion of its ideals. Uh, the review that I'm talking about is by Emrys Sensor. Uh, it's a review of Stefan Erig's book, Ataturk in the Nazi Imagination, uh, from Cambridge University Press, or from Belknap Press, and it was published in 2014. And what's, what I found interesting about this, and, and I'll kind of give you a, an outline of, of what I've gleaned from this review, is that it's, it's really engaging with this recent move to look at the transnational influences on Nazism. And what Irig is arguing is that Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, provided something of an early model for the Nazi movement. And what he says is that Turkey, before Italy, before Germany, certainly, had managed to achieve a lot of the goals that Hitler had been talking about. So much like Germany, uh, which had been given this rather repressive uh, peace settlement in the Treaty of Versailles, Turkey had also signed a peace treaty, the Treaty of Sevres, which you know, tore the Ottoman Empire apart. It was the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and it resulted in, in the occupation of Turkey. But uh, Kemal Ataturk led an uprising against this, actually fought back against the imposition of the treaty, and managed to establish an independent republic, the Republic of Turkey. And he, he maintained a stance that was kind of anti-Western, anti-imperialist, and overwhelmingly nationalist. That Ataturk, I mean, his name means Father Turk, that he right. built the Turkish nation. Yeah. Um, and the way in which he did it was also quite radical, that he carried out ethnic cleansings. And, and that the Ottoman Empire had, had carried out the Armenian genocide during the First World War. Uh, but after the war, 
uh, with the occupation of Western Turkey by the Greeks uh, and with the establishment of the Armenian Republic in the, the eastern end of Anatolia, uh, Ataturk had also participated in destroying the Armenian Republic and mm. uh, came to an agreement with the Greeks to exchange ethnic groups. So all of the Turks in Greece were sent to Turkey and all the Greeks in Turkey were sent to Greece. Uh, so this is an example that Hitler and the Nazis could look to uh, as a way to establish a real nationalist state by moving populations. And you know, there's some other parallels between the way the Nazis saw the situation in Germany and the way the Turks were handling uh, their uh, own unique situation. Uh, the, the Turks had, in the eye of the way that, that it was presented, the Turks had suffered a stab in the back during the war as well, mm -hmm. that there'd been the Arab revolt, which had contributed to the Ottoman withdrawal from the war. And on top of this, Ataturk himself offered an example of the leadership principle in action. That Ataturk was every bit of the charismatic leader. He was more or less a dictator that ruled with a high degree of support from the Turkish people. And it seems that the sources that Irig is using in this book are German newspapers hmm. that are exalting Ataturk, even the, the Volkische Beobachter, for example. Uh, and he points out that Turkey and Ataturk are much more high profile in these newspapers than even places like Mussolini's Italy or Franco's Spain. So I, I found this really interesting because I do a lot of Middle Eastern history myself, and I have yeah. thought about the, the connections between between Germany, Germany and Turkey. More, so I've thought about the connection between Germany and, and the Ottoman Empire, uh, but I didn't realize that. Ataturk himself really had a place in the Nazi mind. Uh, I, I found that, that I really thought, fast. I thought that there were actually some quotes on record from Hitler talking about the treat, treatment of the Armenians, or maybe it was Himmler. Well, that's actually kind of controversial. Uh, Hitler is supposed to have said uh, something to the effect of, no one now speaks of the Armenians. Right. Uh, and I think he said this in 1939, shortly before the invasion of Poland. Uh, the, the message there being be as brutal as you like, because the world may complain for a minute, but yeah. it'll be forgotten. Yeah, you yeah. have your Machiavellian moment. Do, if you must do evil, do it all at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there is some dispute as to whether he actually said this. It was okay. in, I think, Canaris's minutes of the meeting, and that's the only place we, that we have this. That's the only source. Um, right. So it's questionable whether it's authentic or not. But, I mean, particularly if what Irig is saying here is true, the Turkish experience really was in the mind of the Nazis in, uh, in Weimar and early on in, in the Third Reich, then that makes sense that he would make a reference like that. And during, I, I guess we're getting a little bit far afield here, uh, but during the Armenian genocide itself, uh, the German ambassador in Istanbul was very much aware of what was happening. And Henry Morgenthau Sr., the American ambassador actually had approached the German ambassador and tried to talk him into doing something to stop the unfolding genocide. Uh, and he was turned down. This was before the United States entered the war. But the message that Henry Morgenthau Sr. got was, if you want us to do something for you, you know, you want us to scratch your back, you got to scratch our back. Stop giving weapons and trading uh, with the Entente powers so that 
the German embassy was actually trying to use the Armenians as something of a bargaining chip during the war. But they knew what was happening. So, think you'll pick it up? Yeah, I think it probably should. Uh, this is very much right up the alley, uh, particularly because I'm really interested in the colonial influences on Nazism. I, I know that there's a lot of work still to be done there, uh, and that it's often a stretch uh, to try and find those connections. But, you know, you need to remember that it's only a, a few decades that, that separate the, the colonial period of less than that to separate the, the First World War and the Armenian Genocide, uh, and that there are some people that were present and prominent in in all these places and in the Third Reich. So uh, there's got to be some continuities there. Mm-hmm. Something I'm working on. Well, moving swiftly onward, I, I also had a, a, this one was a collected edition that's based on a conference that's been published. It's uh, I dug I dug deep into the Nazism and insert concept here file that I keep of reviews that I need to finally go through, <laughs> and uh, this one was uh, a work in National Socialism in this case, and it was a conference that actually happened a while back in 2012, but the book came out in 2014, so on an academic timeline, it's being reviewed now, so or or uh, actually last february so add my own lead time in there anyway uh-huh. uh, all joking aside it looks really interesting it was done by mark uh, bugun and michael dill who i have a lot of time for his book uh uh an uncompromising generation is all about the leadership core in the rsha and is absolutely wonderful but uh this one is yes like i said it's all about work in national socialism and it's uh it's been divided into three parts in the first one, they're they're dealing with this whole concept, sort of national socialist labor policy and, and what it sort of the concept of, of work was in Nazi Germany and what that meant for everyday life in Nazi Germany. And Vilt has an interesting sort of introductory theoretical essay, it looks like, in that section that's talking about the mixture, how work policy became a site of inclusion and exclusion in the ideas of national socialism and, you know, what the concept of labor was uh you know if you if you were a good worker then you were part of the Volksgemeinschaft and if you weren't then you were outside of it so that work in Nazi Germany very much became about belonging and contributing to the larger you know larger society right so um the the kind of dual phrase that they came up with was that uh, work was for national socialism service to the racial community the Volksgemeinschaft and the inverse of that was that who was not working was therefore distant from the community, Gemeinschaftsfremd, and uh, if if not even dangerous to the community, or Gemeinschaftsfeindlich, or opposed to the community, feindlich. Anyway, uh, there was there was a bunch of other good essays in there, or that looked like they'll be of of interest to anybody who's interested in uh, labor history in Nazi Germany. There was this whole idea by Karsten Linne about how the actual confrontation with the unions, the labor unions and the factory councils and sort of uh, abolition of tariffs and things like this in Nazi Germany was actually part of what contributed to the morphing of national socialist ideology. Like that, that there's sort of this co-opting process almost where national socialist factory and national community ideology emerges from its confrontation with labor unions and with organized labor. That's definitely something that I would like to read more about because, I mean, the relationship with the working class is such an important part of 
national socialism's constant tension with the rest of society. That sounds like a really interesting, uh-huh. interesting essay in there. Uh, anyway, part two was all about uh, production and labor. There was uh, an essay in there that looked interesting with the differentiation between German and Jewish types of work. Uh, I'd definitely huh. like to hear more about that. And then uh, also an interesting essay about visual culture and public portrayals of orderly work specifically, which I'm, I'm sure if if not addressed directly in the essay would have a lot to say about sort of nazism portraying itself as a bulwark in response to labor disorder and the communist movement and socialist movement in the 1920s uh the third part is about collaboration to extermination and this i think is why this book may be of of great interest to you chris it's uh, it's got a whole bunch of essays about different types of forced labor under national socialism so uh there is an essay looking at mining in occupied territories. There's another one looking at the uh, Jewish labor in the Lodz and Krakow ghetto. The the major uh-huh. introductory theoretical essay is all about a broader look at unfree labor and national socialism by Mark Bugum, and uh, and looked like it might be up your strasse. Bugum also uh, published in 2014 slave labor in Nazi concentration camps. Okay. Uh, which is a really fantastic book and maybe something that we could consider looking at on podcast or maybe maybe just his last chapter uh, because he does consider what happens in the concentration camps in the end phase um, in particular uh, talking about how labor was used in the concentration camps in the end phase. And uh, he makes some interesting points like that, um, Jews were not necessarily the most likely to die in the camps at the end of the war, that there were other factors that were as important or more important than race, uh, particularly productivity or, and the kind of work that you were doing uh, was uh, very important for whether you're going to survive or not. Yeah. But maybe we should save that for another day. But that that was in fact the last set of essays that were were that appeared that really stood out to me. Uh, there there's a lot more work that I'm sure is great that's in there. But uh, yeah, that whole idea that productivity productivity defined was often sort of what what meant whether you survived or died. So uh, yeah. yeah, lots of new stuff looked interesting. Uh, I've got an obituary that I'd like to do. Uh, a man named Yisrael Kristal uh, died this last Friday, uh, August 11th of 2017, uh, at the age of 113. Uh, and at the time of his death, he was the oldest living Holocaust survivor uh, and also the world's oldest man. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about this gentleman. Uh, he was born in 1903. To a practicing Jewish family in what is now Poland, but at the time uh, was part of the Russian Empire, it was the, the Congress Kingdom, and he said that you know he was he was there during the First World War, and that during the war he once saw Franz Joseph, the Emperor of Austria-Hungary, uh, drive through town, and apparently uh, the Emperor was lobbing candy out of his car at the children as he went. Uh, and I get the impression that this might have been kind of his own origin story, Israel's origin story, because he himself would become a candy man. You know, he ran a mm. confectionery in Lodz. And in Lodz, he also uh, met and married his wife, a woman named Shaja, and 
they became the parents of two children. Uh, once the Second World War started and the, the Germans invaded Poland, they, they occupied Lodz. Uh, and Yisrael and his family were confined to the Lotz ghetto there. And both of his children died in the ghetto. And when the ghetto itself was liqu- liquidated, uh, he and Shaja were deported to Auschwitz, where he worked as a slave laborer. His wife was murdered. But he seems like a, a person that had a very strong spirit. Um, after the liberation, uh, he made candy for the Soviets that had liberated him. Uh, and he actually went back to Lotz to resume his business, uh, to reopen his candy shop. And this is something that a lot of displaced Jews weren't willing to do, weren't willing to go back to mm-hmm. the communities that had persecuted them and been, in one way or another, complicit in the Holocaust. And back in Lotz, he met his second wife, and they had a son. And then in 1950, uh, the three of them moved to Israel, where he continued his profession as a confectioner, and they also had a daughter. And there in Israel in 2016, he celebrated his bar mitzvah, uh, because when he turned 13, uh, the First World War was in full swing and made celebration impossible. So he instead celebrated his bar mitzvah 100 years late uh, when he turned 113. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So he, he just seems like an, an incredible character. Uh, as, as you might expect, once he became the world's oldest man, a lot of people were really curious to find out what his secret to longevity was. Uh, and he responded to one reporter uh, by saying, uh, everyone has his own luck. It is from heaven. There are no secrets. And to another, he said, there have been smarter, stronger, and better-looking men than me who are no longer alive. So I think this shows that he possessed a good deal of humility. And I don't know a whole lot about him, and I shouldn't be too presumptuous. Uh, these, these things that I've read about him, that he returned to Poland after the war, that he persisted in this trade as a candy maker, it seems to point to a, a resilient spirit, somebody that sought to create joy in a world that is sometimes brutal. Uh, and after his death, his daughter said of him, uh, quote, despite all that he went through and he lost the whole family in the Holocaust, he had a lot of optimism and he always saw only light and good in everything. Hmm. And maybe that kind of attitude was his secret to longevity. Uh, so this, this is a person who quite literally experienced more than all of the rest of us. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's not a history-making figure, uh, but somebody that I think deserves recognition. You're here to that. Well, I think that about does us for the news, but <laughs> uh, moving swiftly onward once again, we have uh, our discussion for the week, which is covering two articles this time. There was a change in plans. I know that last time I announced we were going to be looking at Ralph Blank, I believe. But instead, what we've decided to do is, since we've been spending so much time talking about radicalization and the ideas were comparatively fresh, uh, we were going to discuss two articles, one by Gerhard Paul and another by young Hans Joachim 
Hoyer, is it not? Hoyer, I believe that's right, yeah. On the subject of radicalization and uh, the idea of brutalization and decivilization and Gestapo personnel, which is, of course, so central to radicalization at the end phase. So, uh, Chris, I believe you said you wanted to start with uh, Hoyer's brutalization and decivilization about state police killing. Yeah, I think that of the two chapters that Hoyer was much more uh, engaging uh, to me. Uh, and you can talk a little bit about that, that, that Paul, <laughs> that what what he says has just kind of become canon, so it doesn't mm-hmm. seem exciting anymore. Doesn't sho- yeah, it doesn't shock or amaze <laughs> quite the way that it used to. I'm, I'm, it yeah. might be, perhaps the audience will have a different opinion. but Sure. Yeah, so it's still worth talking about, but I, I would like to start with Hoyer. Um, and I think the best way to start with Hoyer is to start with his title, uh, Brutalization and Decivilization, uh, because these are the two concepts that he's really teasing out in the course of the chapter. Uh, and and both of these point towards the question of radicalization. Why did the Gestapo become so violent? So I, I guess let's let's talk about these two like concepts. Deeper than that, even I think that he's talking about that core idea of you know how do you how do you get people to engage in the Holocaust? How do you get people to go out and just shoot somebody else because of who they are? Right. This article is one that I've always had a lot of time for because he has such a good, like you say, it's compelling, it's gripping. I really wanted to read an extended translated passage from like the diary that he uses where he actually discusses the execution and the internal process of this Gestapo man sorting through what he's gone out and done after executing these people. For people who are really, who really want to come to terms with the idea of how do you get somebody who is a normal person, right? Like, you know, we're talking about the people who were in the, the, the murder squads, the Einsatzgruppen, the death squads that went around and we're just executing local Jews and intelligentsia. You know, these are educated people. 60% of them have doctorates of one type or another in law or some other humanities type discipline. Or no, 60% are doctorates of law. Yeah. Of, of the leadership. Of the leadership, yes. Yeah. But you can't, you can't take this large of a group of people and just sort of say, oh, they're all monsters, you know, and, and, and <laughs> leave it at that. And I think, I think Hoyer has his finger on... This is something that was sort of on the level of Browning for me, you know. Yeah, I, it, what what he's saying is something that's that is different, and I think very significant. He's identifying a process, a forge that is making people that are capable of this kind of brutality. And that's, and that, I mean, that's, I don't know, that's the core of it all, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, if if you hope for a world uh, where never again is a reality, then you have to understand how it's possible to, I was going to say compel people to do this, but that's probably the wrong word. Uh, What environment produces people that are capable of genocide? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you were saying there are two, two core concepts. Yeah, these two two core concepts, uh, brutalization and decivilization. That is the title, brutalization and, and decivilization. Uh, he's much more concerned with the the decivilization mm-hmm. aspect of this. In fact, I think that part of his purpose in writing this is to 
move away from the concept of brutalization because you see this in many other places that mm-hmm. the killers were brutalized and that's how they were capable of this yeah if you uh, go but, out and you kill then you're it's easier for you to cross that line and again and again but it doesn't answer the question yeah. of how you get there in the first place yeah yeah uh, and what he says is that the brutalization is something that happens to the individual that a person is brutalized that a person becomes detached and violent but that the process that creates a person that is brutalized is decivilization mm-hmm. uh, and first of all i'm not comfortable necessarily with translating and civilization as decivilization that that's a, a literal translation mm-hmm. uh, but it seems to me that the opposite of civilization would be barbarization or barbarizing and this is one kind of little problem that i i do have with his terminology but that, barbar- but barbarization is a german term that term does exist in german and i think he's very specifically choosing entzivilisierung right taking the civilization out of it what's interesting so i've actually been reading norbert elias's the civilizing process that he is essentially standing on its head to make this argument and relies on another sociologist who's made similar arguments. But it's about that idea that this is a, it's, it's not barbarism because barbarism is a state absent civilization. Whereas decivilization is how you take a person from a, a civilized state and it, it's the process, like you're saying, it's the process by which you turn somebody into someone who's capable of these crimes. Well, I think that the problem that I have here is just uh, the notion of civilization to begin with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Seriously, <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, assuming that that there that civilization is the the basic state. Uh, it has some uncomfortable Eurocentric undertones to it, I think, and it kind of embraces. Nazi language to some extent. Uh, they, they saw themselves as engaging in a struggle of civilization versus Asiatic Bolshevik barbarism. Still, well, let me uh, throw I, it. Let me throw it at this point. <laughs> let me throw it at this point because I, I actually think that you would really like this, and I think that anybody who's interested in sociology more broadly and just the idea of sort of how you the concept of civilization and the concept of civil society and norms and standards of behavior and all of those things should read this book because it's quite interesting. This book is, uh, was okay. It's amazing because it actually has a description of like medieval etiquette manuals, but how it's impolite to spit across the table. You can spit under the table and beside it. It's not across it. And so it's, it, it, it tracks what he, what Elias calls the, the civilizing process. He was actually, wouldn't have been an exile, but he was a student in Britain, a German who was studying Oxbridge, I believe, somewhere. And uh, he's sort of dealing with the concept of civilization and the dichotomy between civilization and culture and what those two concepts mean for, uh, as, as he sets it up, the British world and the French world. Which he, where he says that the the British and the French actually use, or Anglo's and Franco's use the concept of civilization as something that is normative, that speaks to an entire broader 
uh, you know, that culture is a, is inherent to civilization, right? That it is part of like the, the mission civilatrice, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas that there is a different divide among the German speaking peoples and that culture is something different from civilization and civilization is more the outward manifestations of mores and norms. Whereas culture is the like civilization is behavior. Culture is the intellectual production of a people. Whereas culture is considered inherent to a civilized state in the Franco and the Anglo world. And what he's doing is he's tracing these one, how you get the emergence of the concept of culture and the emergence of the concept of civilization. And then two, how those develop along two distinct paths. It's quite interesting because, you know, he's right. This was published, either it was published in 1933 or he finished the manuscript in 1933. He was writing about the Nazis in mind, right? As somebody uh-huh. who's, who was seeing the Nazis as, quite appropriately, a de-civilizing presence in the world. That's pretty interesting and, and probably something that, that I should take a look at. A um, book worth reading. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all the same. I mean, we, we can, or we should uh, talk about the, the concept itself, uh, but labeling it as, as de-civilization, it, it implies that, that there's kind of a, a progression and that Nazism was moving backwards. Op- yes. Yes. Yeah. Should take take that with a grain of salt. Yes, um, yeah. But it, I think that it's, it is it establishing a norm of behavior. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's establishing normative behavior in the concept of civilization, and that goes beyond. But I think that's that's part of it. Is that what he's saying is that civilization is a set of shared norms, and that in the way that he defines civilization is the decline of person on person violence, and the way that he defines mm-hmm. brutality is rough and callous with the implication of physical violence. So whereas the civilizing process is about the advancement of human and behavior and sensibility that reduces human and human violence, then the decivilizing process is the inverse of that. Okay. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, but this, this process itself of decivilization. Yes. And what is part of it? Let's let's accept that that label and just go with it. Um, yes. uh, it it is also a constructive process that it's about creating a group. Um, Institutions are key in creating the group, yeah. as are interpersonal relations. Yeah, and and uh, he's suggesting that that decivilization is the group process whereby a person is brutalized or that they undergo brutalization, uh, and it's a transfer of new violent norms from person to person within a group. So I had it broken down into two prongs with three prongs under the sort of decivilization side of things. Tell me what you think of these. On the one hand, you have collective action. And on the other hand, you have the individual psychological process. And then Mm -hmm. under collective actions, we have interpersonal camaraderie of shared experience. You have institutional priorities that are part of a larger goal that is beyond oneself that assume a sort of objective character that immunize members of that institution against the norms of the rest of society and create their own space with different norms and a shared secrecy within that space 
-hmm. that it serves as a reinforcing bond between individuals to both one another and the institution. Yeah, I think that you've nailed it. So and then there's the individual side. Yes. And that's yes. that. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I'm waiting for you. What have you, uh, what have you got in that comment? I've, I've just got, well, the professionalization or the technicalization, as mm -hmm. I put it, of murder. That there, there is a, a psychological process whereby one imposes this objective remove that you, uh, that is really for me the most interesting part of how people, cause that, that's where you, that's where the rubber hits the road, right? Like you can, so long as everybody else is doing it, you're kind of in that groupthink area. The, the this individual the professionalization of murder i think is where he's really talking about something that i have never heard of before yeah uh because initiative is definitely present in this professionalization component that mm -hmm. people or uh i suppose landau in particular um and we should outline him in a moment uh, are looking for ways to be more efficient in the killings. Mm -hmm. uh, and this seems to be both a way that they distance themselves from what's really happening uh, and also uh, turn it into a profession, into a routine task uh, that they can shine at rather and than be better at. Than murdering, yeah, yeah. Rather than, than seeing it as uh, murdering women and children, uh, they're seeing it as a task that they're excelling at. Yeah, it is my profession. It's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. mein, mein Beruf ist Einsatzgruppenleiter, right? Like, you know, <laughs> put that on your CV. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right, well, so, laid lay out, who is this guy? Let's, let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about Landau and his experience because he's a great example for everything that Hunter's talking about. Mm. So, uh, Landau was a member of the Vienna Gestapo. Uh, and he volunteered for an Einsatzkommando uh, in the Soviet Union. So um, he participated in executions in Soviet-controlled Poland. And he, he chose and, to be there. That's the other part. Right. Yeah. Um, although uh, Himmler was very interested in rotating people east to get them experience. Um, mm -hmm. So he may have had a gentle nudge that the group that he was a part of already uh, would have endorsed being a part of uh, the Einsatzgruppen. Yes. Yeah. So, I um, mean, you do have to consider that you don't have to call it Precker, uh, but he was operating within a culture that was probably encouraging people to volunteer for this. Right. Absolutely. The pressure, the pressure is there or the expectation, like, and I mean, that's part of the later discussion about this shared secrecy and internal mm -hmm. norms and reliability in that. But like the, if you want the pressure to be part of the club is there, but he's also somebody who it volunteers rather than being voluntold as with yeah. the kind of the rotation system. Sure. And, and Hori doesn't talk about this, but there may have also been career motives there um, mm -hmm. that this would be an, an opportunity to do something that could get you, get you promoted or raise your profile. Um, yeah, all the front same ser front volunteer. service advances your career. Yeah. Uh, but all, all the same, he did volunteer uh, to do it. And he kept a diary. That's, that's what really makes him important, is that he wrote down what happened, how he felt about it, um, and also how he thought it could be done better. 
And uh, Hoyer starts with him by talking about a particular execution uh, in July of 1941. So I have that section right here, in fact. Excellent. All right. Uh, So we drove along the rural road for a few kilometers and went to a forest on the right. We were only six men at the moment and sought an appropriate place for an execution by firing squad and burial. After a few minutes, we found something. The candidates for death approached with shovels in order to dig their own graves. Two cried about everything. The others had astounding courage. What was happening in the brain at that moment? I believe each had a small hope. Somehow, they would not be shot in spite of it all. The candidates for death were arranged in three shifts, so there weren't so many shovels around. Strangely, nothing at all moved inside me. No sympathy. Nothing. That's the way it is, and that's how everything is settled. My heart only beat very softly if, unbidden, the feelings and thoughts arose as if I were to find myself in a similar situation. Slowly, the hole grew larger. Two cried incessantly. I let them dig longer. They didn't think so much that way. During the work, they were actually quieter. The valuables, watches, and money were gathered in a pile. After everyone was brought outdoors, the two women were stood by the end of grave for execution. Two men were already shot by a criminal commissar in the bush. I didn't see it, as I had to watch over the others. The women approached the pit with immense composure, turned around. Six men of ours were to shoot them. The arrangement was made. Three men on the heart, three men on the skull. I took the heart. The shots hit, and the brain matter swirled through the air. Two on one skull is too much. They practically rip the head away. Almost all fall without a noise. It doesn't work with only two. They howl and whimper for some time. Revolver shots don't do. With us two, who shoot together, there is no malfunction. The second-to-last group must now throw those already shot in the mass grave, Then they must stand to and also fall, in fact, by themselves, into the grave. The last two must sit on the front edge of the grave so that they soon fall in correctly. Now, a few corpses will be restacked with the pickaxe, and then we begin the work of burying the dead. Uh, Okay. So he wrote uh, about how on the 12th of July... 1941, he sought out an execution site uh, for what he refers to as totus candidaten, uh, candidates for death. And that once they arrived at the execution site, they had to dig their own graves. Um, and the, the details that he picks out are interesting. So he talks about the candidates for death themselves, that they're, they're bearing there. He points out that two of them were crying. Uh, Apparently this really got under his skin and that the rest had astounding courage. And he he tries to get into their head, speculates about what they're thinking at the time. And he says that maybe they were still hanging on to some small hope, that that's the reason why uh, they were able to go on uh, being in a position where they're digging their own graves and they know what's, what's coming. But yeah, he and, quite literally says, I believe everyone has this small hope somehow that they'll still won't be shot. Like, yeah. 
It is and, a huge passage. And it makes it's sense. So and it, chilling. It, it, and probably did. Mm-hmm. It's, it's impossible to put yourself into that position, but you can try and imagine it. Um, and can expect that in that spot, you're, you're going to try and find a way out. You're going to try and tell yourself that there's a way out. Oh. His 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 discussion of his own reaction to it is really interesting. He says, personally, inside of me, nothing moved. And no, like, no feelings, like no stirring, nothing stirred. And he says that his heart beat slowly. This cold-blooded. That he, he wasn't wasn't just comfortable with what was happening. He was physiologically not aroused by preparing for a mass murder. And then he gets the process itself about the the technique of the execution that they took all of their valuables. Um, and this is something that was going to be common for all of the inside group and executions. Um, he doesn't say that they took their clothes, and that's something that does happen later. That's one of the innovations in the Einsatzgruppen murders that will come out of people just like Landau trying to find better ways to carry out this process. And once they had relieved the victims of their valuables, uh, they took them to this grave that they'd already dug out and lined them up next to each other. Uh, and he says there's that he this had- important point, right? Like, as they're digging, as they're digging the grave, the two people who are crying don't stop crying, and so he says, um, "Like gradually, the hole got bigger. Two cried without stopping. I let them dig longer so that they didn't mm-hmm. think so much. While the work was ongoing, they were in fact quieter. Right? Like, you know, it, there's this whole. He's figuring out small ways to." manage the situation yeah and that that's a, a point where he's kind of crossing over from his psychoanalysis of the victims uh into a way to apply it to make the executions more efficient or at least more bearable for the executioners and he also says that they shoot the ones that were crying first mm-hmm. uh, so he says he's unmoved but it seems like this is affecting him to some extent. Uh, it may have manifest as annoyance uh, rather than sympathy. Mm-hmm. But he talks about the, the people that are crying over and over again. Yeah. Uh, so it had some kind of impact. The two cried about everything. The two who cried without stop or without you know without ceasing. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. And, and this the the same idea is there that it's when he's have it when the passage that he's talking about like what my my heart beat quietly uncalled you know when unbidden the feelings and thoughts awoke what it would be like if i found myself in a similar situation right like he, he he's outside of himself watching these people digging their own graves and he's going through this mental process of what's it like to what why are they still doing this and even then, he's and what would I do if I was in that situation? How would I behave? And he still has this sort of. He, I think it's interesting that he refers to these thoughts, these uh, these empathetic thoughts of you know, what if I was that person digging that grave? 
that he's still saying that like, and yet there still wasn't a physiological reaction, but at the same time, he still identifies these thoughts as unbidden, right? Mm -hmm. as, as, as sort of like attacking him in some way, a way like un, uncalled, you know, unbidden thoughts and feelings that awoke. Yeah. And he's, he's very clearly trying to suppress all of that at this point. And then, uh, later on, he talks about, uh, when he's away from his comrades at night and how it affects him. Um, yes. Well, there's, there's more to this because he, he goes very into very great detail about the, the actual process of the execution. Yeah. And I think that's the, the most interesting part of this diary entry that he's dealing with the logistics of it all, uh, how it's carried out and how it might be done better. He talks about, you know, how many shooters they had, where they aimed that uh, some were aiming at the heart and some were aiming at the skull uh, and that he himself was participating in the shooting and that he was one of the people aiming for the heart. And he suggests that shooting people in the head is a bad idea, uh, particularly he says two two people shooting at the head is too much uh, because it just produces gore that their heads are almost ripped off that brains spray everywhere. Honestly, I, I, I don't think I've ever read anything this powerful that puts you that far into the skin of the perpetrator. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's yeah, worth it's, experiencing it's firsthand, you know? Yeah, I, no, I think that. I think this is yeah. the question that I think this paragraph is I feel reading this paragraph I feel like I've understood more about the Holocaust and the Nazis and how you get there than anything else that I've read in a long 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 time. Yeah, it's it's intense. <laughs> and it's and it's moving. I'm he's he's very much bearing himself in this diary and i think the diary itself is him trying to process what's happening that it's yeah. not not just that he's trying to find better ways to do it um, no. he's also trying to come to terms with what he is doing but i think the way that that and i think that's the great thing that Hoyer, the point great point that Hoyer makes is that by the way that he processes it by turning it into a process in and of itself and turning it into something that he can do more efficiently in, mm -hmm. in and more professionally that that is his way of removing himself and from psychologically from murder he never talks about it as murder he talks about it mm -hmm. as work employment right like yeah. i yeah. i'm i'm busy with this i'm doing that yes. we do this right right they're, they're, they're working with death candidates Yes, <laughs> that phrase by itself. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 man. Like that. There you go. You know, and uh, yeah, like. But but also the 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 procedure that he's dealing with, the objective that he seems to be aiming for, uh, isn't necessarily efficient. Uh, he's trying to make it more bearable. Uh, well, I th efficient in the sense of immediate death. Immediate sanitized death. It, but not for the benefit benefit of the victims, for the benefit of the executioners, uh, in mm -hmm. in order to make it less traumatic for himself and his comrades. 
But I think, yeah. But I think the point is that he's viewing it through the lens of efficiency. How can <laughs> I do this better? It's not how can I protect myself. It's not how can I, or not consciously, how can I protect myself? It's not consciously, how can I make this death more painless for that person so that their pain doesn't affect me, right? None of that is there. It's, it's a, 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 a blood, for all of its gore, it's a bloodless professional objective, objective, quote unquote, analysis of, of how I can do this, right? Like that's how he processes this event. Right, like the revolver shots do nothing. He talks specifically that uh -huh. they shoot two women, and, or they shoot two people, and it doesn't work. And they, you know, most of them drop immediately. They try it on two of them, it doesn't work, and they they scream and whine. And the revolver shots that they try there don't work, right? And so they've they've gone over and they've tried to finish them off, but it, you know, that's or no, I guess the implication here would be that they take shots with revolvers. But the revolvers aren't lethal, so use mm -hmm. rifles. Yeah, yeah. But I still, I'm not convinced that even his ostensible goal is efficiency, uh, as far as speed or volume. Uh, but sanitizing the execution, I guess, to make it more of a procedure, more of an occupation. But the, the goal that he seems to be aiming for is still to change the experience of the executioner. And later on, I'm, Himmler is going to latch onto that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Himmler went and saw a, an Einsatzgruppen execution in August of 41. So a month after this execution that Landau is, is talking about. Uh, and a higher SS uh, police leader, um, Eric von den Bach Zalewski was there, and uh, Zalewski said to Himmler, oh, what kind of people are we creating? They're all going to be neurotics or brutes. And mm -hmm. I think Himmler took this to heart. I, I think that the effect yeah, of these shootings on the executioners is a major impetus for the creation of extermination camps to remember fully Himmler sanitize kept, the process. Yeah, absolutely. And remember that Hitler... Or him, Hitler. Himmler kept uh, an in-house psychiatrist specifically for the Einsatzgruppen guys, uh, specifically mm -hmm. to deal with the PTSD from these executions, right? Yeah. Yeah, but they themselves are also trying to deal with the PTSD in the field, and the yes. way that they're doing it is with camaraderie. That yes. that is their medication for what they're doing, is that they're all acting together as a part of a group. And that everybody else doing it too helps to normalize it, helps to make it an everyday task, to make it just a job or a process. And I think the he he also talks about the uh, comrade nights or the camaraderie nights that the executioners, aka uh, drinking boats. Yes, they're they're binge drinking sessions after executions. Uh, where everyone gets together and drinks themselves silly. This is a place where they can come together with alcohol. And, and I also get the sense that it puts them to sleep. That mm -hmm. if they're not drinking, then instead, they if they don't pass out, they're laying in bed thinking about what they've been doing. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's what's really interesting, right? Like you have the the two things going on here. This and Hoyer addresses it really well. That camaraderie turns into a stand-in word, a barometer, like uh, for how well the individuals are managing their mental state to do with the executions. So long as the camaraderie is good, so long as they're there <laughs> with their friends, so long as they're being you know, so long as everybody is patting everybody on the back and saying that they're doing this great and, and terrible, wonderful thing for Germany's future, then they can manage it. But when he wakes up in the middle of the night, then he has this, this terrible nightmare that he doesn't give the details of, but like, I mean, he knows what he's been doing, right? Like, yeah. And so they have quote unquote camaraderie nights where they all drink together to and and tell each other what a good job they've done and and get over it and try and blot out the memories with liquor until they pass out, like you say. Yep. And this is the process. This is decivilization. It is experience validated by participating in this experience in a group and processing it in a group through things like comrade nights uh, and looking at it as a process that can be improved upon mm-hmm. it is the, the transfer of, I guess, individual solutions to the brutalization that they're experiencing uh, dispersed through the group, through camaraderie. Well, and it goes that, and this is sort of the next step of creating that Island. That is the other part of what, what Hoyer is talking about where he begins to draw on this other sociologist the creation of a secret culture that exists yes. in intelligence services, the Gestapo, which he points out in the introduction of the article, the secret in secret state police is not their existence, but their activities and their methods mm-hmm. and executions for foremost amongst them. But that this idea that by building this camaraderie and by building this institutional culture separate and away from and, you know, these are all the people that you have both the shared experience in and the shared secret with, that this is what creates that bond between both individuals and the individuals to the institution that creates these goals. Yeah, uh, that they, they are collectively identifying with an institution and that the, the secret practices of that institution set them apart from both the mainstream German society and the outsiders of German society. They don't they, get it. They haven't seen what we've seen. They haven't yeah. done what we've done. We, yeah. we did it. We did it together. And we were hard enough to see this terrible task through, right? The 1943, what's the speech that Himmler gives? Uh, the Posen speech. The yeah. Posen speech. The only, the only open veiled reference to the Holocaust. Yeah, so, yeah. He, he says, you know, we we here are the ones that know what it is to see a hundred bodies or five hundred bodies piled up. Uh, yeah, uh, and that's a source of their group identity is having all been a part of these horrible deeds. And uh, the 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 concept that Hoyer draws on to. Uh, explain this is is the idea of an underground organization Mm -hmm. that uh, because they are secret 
because uh, the organization is built around the secret of, of what the activity of the Gestapo is. They constitute an underground organization, something that's not um, in necessarily endorsed by the mainstream norms, that it's outside of that, uh, that they're immune to social norms. And instead, that it's almost like cult dynamics, that they look to the organization itself for their morality, that something that advances the goals of the group is what's right. I don't know that morality is the right word. I think objectives and norms are, are what it's about. That the the goal, the secrets create the bond to the organization, but the organization and is what sets the goals. And because the organization, rather than the individual, sets the goals, that gives it this sort of veil of objectivity or veneer <laughs> of objectivity that allows these individuals to then say, well... It's it's not me who's decided this is necessary. It's the institution that has decided it's necessary. And because the institution has decided it's necessary, it must be objective because it's not just me. It's not just one person. But uh -huh. because I've gone out and I've taken part in it as an individual with this guy and this guy and this guy, you know, we're all part of the, the secret club, right? Yeah. And that may be why after the war they – say they were only following orders or only doing their duty and maybe they believed it when they said that mm -hmm. uh, because they so identified with the goals of the group i i think i think that's absolutely the case i mean i mean how could you it what how could you live with yourself what moral universe could you live in where you could do something like that unless you believed truly believe in in the validity of those goals and the the value of of engaging in them and you know you you'd have to believe everything that Himmler laid out in the Posen speech right that this was this great task for the future of the German people that you know because I, oh, I, I I never that's trickier though that's trickier though um, I I don't I think, think that like, belief I think belief is different than identity that you almost don't need to believe in the ideology of the group if you just believe in the group itself. How do you, you separate those two things, especially in this case? Well, through camaraderie, you are working, if you can want to call it that, uh, with people who you know and respect, and everybody's doing the same thing right uh, so just believing in the people around you could make you feel like what you're doing is all right that you wouldn't necessarily even have to endorse like basic anti-semitism but i think but you still there's still this whole element in hoyer's explanation that revolves around the idea that there has to be a belief that the secret knowledge afforded by the underground organization allows an insight and an understanding into reality that the rest of society does not understand and that that is what allows one to develop alternative norms, right? That that's what allows the norms of an institution to become self-reinforcing in spite of the fact that they're totally adrift with the rest of society. 
I think here again we're running up against brutalization versus decivilization. That the decivilization is the group process, almost like an emergent quality mm-hmm. of people all put in the same situation that act and see how their comrades are acting and that it produces kind of like a feedback loop that that's the decivilization and and it's not necessarily about belief it's about practice uh group practice uh, whereas brutalization as an individual process uh could require things like modifications of personal morals or norms or beliefs and i don't think you necessarily need both that if you're part of a decivilized organization that could motivate you to accept killing or if you are personally brutalized that could motivate you to accept killing and i'm sure that most of them were both that most of them understood the ideology behind it and accepted it i'm willing to believe in the exception that proves the rule right but I, I think that you really, to engage in the type of behavior that you're talking about, you have, these are mutually reinforcing processes. It's the same type of thing that you see in any sort of tightly knit unit, uh, right? And any type of institution that in some way rests on norms that are separate from the rest of society or create a set of justifications or calories that allow one to engage in behavior that would otherwise not be accepted in the rest of society, right? That, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's the belief in like the, all the, the crux of this argument is the bond both at the, the sort of the individual and the camaraderie level, but also this this secret that binds one to the institution and reinforces those bonds mm-hmm. beyond just well we all did it together it's not just we all did it together we all did it together as part of a big great secret that is part or terrible uh, secret that is part of this institution right and this institution is what told us to do it but we did it because we are reliable we did it because we are loyal we did it because we do believe right And so, again, like I'm saying, you never, there are always exceptions, right? Sure. But on balance, that's why I think Hoyer has such a a, a tightly sewn up argument on this case. But I I don't think that he is arguing for belief. That that what he's he's arguing for process. Yeah. 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 And and Landau's reaction of, of trying to professionalize what he's doing that's not about believing in what you're doing that's about believing that you are a person that does a good job identifying a executions as a job and then doing that as well as you can oh dear have i fallen into the trap of the argument he's trying to debunk (laughs) (laughs) and and belief belief is obviously a factor Belief, but belief in national socialism is a factor, a but it's what pushes it over. Condition. Yeah, over the edge. I don't know. I I don't know. I guess like Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men certainly does sem- tend to lend more to your your tack in this particular 
and and he's subject. he's concerned with the group dynamics as well. Uh, I think that that he's pretty close to what Hoyer is saying here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, he is. Well, that's what I'm saying is that Hoyer has added a whole extra level that involves the security police specifically. Yeah. Much of what Browning says applies. Much of what Browning applies says. Bleh. Much of what Browning says applies to both groups. Hoyer adds uh, an, an extra level, I think, in, in just sort of the behavior of the Gestapo, especially as an elite set apart from the rest of society. Uh huh. And and of course, Browning is talking about the order police rather than the Gestapo. Uh, mm-hmm. But but the order police what, are what still engaged is also in the secret. great secret. Yeah, yeah the great yeah, secret. Right. That, yeah. that they they would be <laughs> they'd be in on the secret certainly. All right, so let's say that Hoyer's right and that the Gestapo is brutalized and decivilized in the East. Then how do we explain their behavior when they return to Germany? I think that yeah. comes back to the whole point that he was making. And this was a point that I want to raise before, but I think this is the ideal moment to bring it up. This idea that because because of camaraderie and because of institutional loyalty those three things that he was talking about reliability trustworthiness and loyalty that come along with the secret and come along with camaraderie and come along with the quote-unquote objective goals set by the institution separate from the individual that is why people continue to behave that way because this is this is what what binds you together at that point Right. Yeah, but there's not mass executions inside the Reich after they come back, at least not until the end of the war. Right, but the operations in the occupied territories are specifically identified against groups that are identified as security threats. Now, this is an area where Uh you have much, much more knowledge than I do. But my understanding is that you're looking at intelligentsia and Jews. Yeah. And partisans. And partisans, yes. Or, or people who are identified <laughs> in some way as being connected or lending support to or are caught up in a collective reprisal against partisans. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, I, but I think, if, so if we're bringing it back to the end phase, right? Yeah. I think that is why you see the radicalization against non-Germans because these activities are directed against non-Germans and it's only until the very, very end when the institution that they are a part of legitimizes violence against Germans for a whole slew of new behaviors that they are then willing to take those steps. And that goes back to all the points we've been mm-hmm. discussing in previous weeks about the absence of central direction or legitimate oversight as they understand it for life and death decisions concerning Germans is what separates the behavior towards non-Germans and Germans. Because they've done this with non-Germans before. That's not, that this is nothing new to them in that respect. Sure, but of course it's years before they start executing Germans. And even then it's not mass executions. I suppose in in the prisons at at the very end, uh, there's mass executions of prisoners, uh, many of whom are Germans. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know, I've, I'm thinking that we got to think about contingency and context also. 
that maybe it's not that there's some groups that are underground groups, secret groups, like the Gestapo, but there's also some spaces that are secret spaces, that the war zones, the occupied Eastern territories, and later the war zone within Germany itself, uh, where the norms of the mainstream don't apply. That while Germany is not under direct threat from allied ground forces, the, the general norms there continue. But when it becomes a war zone, they start to break down just as, as they've, they've broken down in the east. I, I think that you're, you're definitely onto something. There's a difference between the colonial space and the home front. Right? When you're in the empire, different yeah. rules apply than we, when you're in the home isles, right? Yeah, except, you know, is Germany a colonial space at the end? Well, I think that there, there's something very different going on. I don't think that you just you necessarily need to extrapolate that Germany becomes an imperial space so much as the dedication, all of the things that he has been ta- that Hoyer talks about with group group bonding and uh, institutional loyalty. All of those things are still in effect. All of these people. Mm-hmm. Are, are already committed and are up to their eyeballs in the crimes of the regime. So there is no going back in their minds from what what they've been engaged in, right? And and what's interesting is you actually see a lot of the Gestapo aid, or Gestapo officers who are inside of Germany who have been involved in behaviors on the home, who have been active in policing the home front but have never been transferred overseas. I think that there's an opportunity there to do some type of analysis about whether or not they they go on and they go on with the the werewolves or whether they just surrender to the allies, whether they keep going moving with the evacuations, honestly. Because uh, I, I can think of two examples off the top of my head, uh, one from the Krefeld office and one from either Duisburg or Essen, like that sort of northern part of the Rhine metropolis, that do not move with the evacuation, but go home and wait for the allies to arrive. Huh. Right. And they're both guys who were never transferred overseas or over abroad. Huh. So maybe they didn't feel the same kind of belonging as those people who had been through the, the crucible of the executions. This would raise questions about many of Gerhard Powell's arguments about how brutalization works with knowledge on the home front and sort of proliferation of brutalization through the knowledge of what the Gestapo has been involved in. I'm sure it it plays out on a much more individual level, but like one of his big arguments is that part of the proliferation is the rotation system. And I, I don't, I actually, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm going to backtrack on that. I, I haven't, it's been, it's been like eight years since I read that book and it was really good. And I should be very exact about what he was saying. <laughs> oh, it could be cautious. Yeah. But uh, like, I, you know, the core of his argument is the rotation system. So the core of his argument is solid, but there, there's, I remember a section that he talks about the 
um, the circulation of photos and sort of a general knowledge. And I believe that he suggests a more broad brutalization there. So there might be more room for more research to test whether or not that particular thesis holds true. Hmm. You know, the, the idea of circulating photos uh, isn't is interesting that perhaps if you already feel that you're part of the group of the Gestapo and you haven't personally participated in the executions, but you heard stories from your comrades about what happened there and you've seen pictures of it, of that you may almost vicariously feel like you've participated, uh, probably a romanticized version uh, of the executions. Uh, but that could also create identity with the group and with group practice. It could also just as equal, and the 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 core of Paul's argument that I think is quite solid is is it also can opens conceptual doors about what is acceptable, mm-hmm. right? If we this is an this is the organization that I belong to, and this is what we do. Yeah. Well, this may be a good uh, point to move over to Paul's chapter. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. We'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time when we'll be discussing Gerhard Powell's article on the continuities and breaks in the development of the Würzburg Gestapo, that's in northern Bavaria, in its development from the Weimar political police over the course of the Gestapo and the Third Reich's history. Until then.